One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, it would appear, ladies and gentlemen, on the brink. Seven months since the first lockdown in March, it is becoming more and more clear that we are heading into another one. This morning, Northern Ireland looks poised to announce that schools will close for a two-week circuit breaker, which will also result in the closure of restaurants and pubs, apart from takeaways, no sale of alcohol beyond 8pm, what's all that about, and no sport either, pretty much, and the reason... Apparently, seven coronavirus-related deaths on Tuesday. Now, I don't know what coronavirus-related means, but I'd very much like to know what coronavirus-related means because I presume it means they may not have been entirely due to coronavirus. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson faces off against the Keir Starmer today at Prime Minister's Questions after the Labour leader controversially called for a full lockdown because, he says, the Prime Minister is no longer following scientific advice. Really? Well, that's news to the people of Liverpool who were out in the streets celebrating the last few hours of freedom last night and all the other people around the country uh, who seem to be incapable and unable to do any of the things that they used to be able to do yesterday. Boris has called Starmer's intervention politicking with the virus and accused the opposition leader of careering all over the place like a broken shopping trolley. Whatever decision is taken in the coming days, it is sure to be a fiery Prime Minister's questions today. And we'll bring it to you live with Talk Radio's political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers. Of course, we want to hear from you. We need your stories. Uh, we need what you're hearing. We need what you're seeing. We need, we need to know what you're being told. We're hearing more and more stories from people saying that they're being warned that they might be being made redundant coming up over the next few weeks. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we are joined by historian and presenter Neil Oliver with the latest from Scotland, which is already on increased full lockdown measures already. And we'll bring you this latest from this week's Plank of the Week in the company of former Brexit Party MEP Martin Daubney and Conservative commentator Esther Kraku. 0344 499 1000. Last week's Plank, Dominic West is still on one of the many front pages this morning, pictured with his wife uh, and wearing rather a smug expression on his face uh, after being caught canoodling with his TV co-star Lily James in Rome earlier this week. Oh dear, Mr West. Uh, and also, as ever, uh, we want to hear what is going on out there because here's my question. What is the point of saving lives from COVID if people end up dying from other diseases that they can't get treated? What is the point of saving lives from COVID if people are becoming more and more depressed because they don't have a job to go to or they don't have a job at all? What is the point of saving lives from COVID if people are going to become destitute and unable to look after their families and buy food and pay their mortgage. What is the point of saving lives from COVID if all that's going to happen is that people are going to commit suicide because they are so badly off? The economy is teetering on the brink. My plea to this government is please do not let it die. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's a pretty bleak old message out there this morning because Keir Starmer appears to have done uh, what all good politicians do, which is to completely snooker his opponent. He has basically snookered Boris Johnson by coming out late yesterday and calling for a full lockdown because Boris Johnson cannot come out today and say, we're never going to do that because he can't make that promise. He can't come out today and say that Sir Keir Starmer has got it wrong. I am following the science because there's clearly, to me, some kind of split emerging within SAGE, some kind of split emerging within uh, the scientific community that advises the Prime Minister. And clearly, some of them have gone to the Financial Times, leaked it to them that some people on SAGE think that Boris is doing the wrong thing. And that, for me, is a kind of insidious, treasonous way to operate. Let's talk to David Woody, son on Sunday's political editor, to find out what he makes of it all. David, a very good morning to you. 
Morning, Mike. So, I mean, I have deduced, and you can tell me I'm wrong if you wish, uh, that there's some kind of massive split going on in the scientific advisors community around SAGE, right? Two or three of them have obviously gone and broken ranks, gone to talk to the FT, which we all know uh, is the home of the sort of uh, left-leaning Labour lot in uh, in Parliament. Uh, and they've basically tried to uh, undercut and undermine the Prime Minister's policies. Yes, uh, you, you do have to feel sorry for the Prime Minister in whatever, wh- whatever stance you have yeah. on this issue, because... Everybody is against him. I mean, just just look at the the forces who are arguing against him. You've got you've got Witty and Valance, the, the medical and scientific advisors, saying we're not doing enough. We have to lock everything down. Yeah. And they're being argued against with the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who's saying, what about the economy? And then of course you've got the mayors. Even they can't agree. You've got uh, the, the Liverpool regional mayor um, uh, Steve Rotherham, yeah. uh, who's who's telling who's, who's just put his, his agreed. To for his own city into lockdown, but then says, no, I haven't. Right. And then 40 miles down the road, you've got another scouser who runs Manchester called Andy Burnham, mm. uh, who's fighting it. Uh, and then, of course, you've Despite got... Despite having the, called for it in the first place. Yes. And then you've got the rebel MPs in the Tory ranks who say, what the hell are you doing, mm. Boris? Stop this now. Right. And then you've got Keir Starmer, of course, who now, as you rightly say, is, is, is positioning himself by saying, uh, this is all for I told you so, frankly, uh, Mike. He says, we need a lockdown now, even though... Um, uh, he didn't mention it in the Commons on Monday, um, but but he's, he's he's opportunistically, you could say, calling for a, a three week, two to three week time. He can't even say whether it's two weeks or three weeks. Right. To be honest, he's two to three week lockdown, to a circuit breaker, and then if, of course, Boris does one, then he goes victory. Labour have, have won the day. We've we've won what we called for. Why didn't you do it first? Yeah. First time. Why have you? Why have we had to do it? And now, if he doesn't do it. Uh, but it's quite simple. You're costing lives, Boris. We told you you should have had a circuit yes, breaker. But that's so right. They win but of course, the trouble is because uh, when I, I I sort of thought that Keir Starmer had finally done something right last Wednesday on Prime Minister's questions when he asked the Prime Minister, "Can you please provide us with evidence of why the 10 p.m. curfew can stay in place and what's the evidence for actually putting it on in the first place?" Indicating that he was against it, right? Indicating yeah. that he thought it should be lifted. He then the next day refuses to go along with himself and disagrees with himself and says, "Actually, I support the government." in this. I'm now not going to ask for the evidence. But I wonder whether anyone will ask him for the evidence as to why a two to three week lockdown is going to make any difference anyway. Yes. And his answer to that will be, of course, I'm not here to answer questions. This is Prime Minister's questions. Yes, exactly right. (laughs) And you're in charge. We're here to hold you to account. And of course, that's a a ploy being used by leaders of the opposition of all colours and persuasions over many, many years. But also, I mean, I I said to somebody this morning, you know, looking at the whole uh, business in the round, I mean, Boris Johnson clearly is following scientific advice because otherwise, why would Liverpool be being locked down? I mean, we saw amazing pictures uh, coming in from Liverpool last night of people literally partying in the streets, right? Immediately uh, because it was their last final hours of of freedom, as far as they know, because, because everybody knows you can put a lockdown in, but you can't take a lockdown out so quickly can you well we found this last time did we not when it was the whole country yeah it's so much easier to get a lockdown in it, it was quite staggering how within a couple of days the whole of britain had become a a, a desert mm. a ghost town right. um and then when they started trying to lift things people weren't venturing out again and i think that's the problem and the the, the bigger problem mike is those companies which are right on the brink now if they're shut down for a month it might just finish them off. Yeah. So well, funnily enough, I found again. myself in, in central London last night um, in a couple of pubs and, and walking around Covent Garden. And the amount of empty tables in restaurants is absolutely staggering. And clearly people have now, having come back out and having gone to, 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 eat in, uh, to eat out, to help out and done all that, that's all now over and it's all finished. And now, I don't know whether you've been into any pubs recently, David, but I mean, it's a pretty soul-destroying experience, basically, where a guy in a mask tells you to sit over there, tells you to order your drink from the table uh, on some kind of app, uh, refuses to let you walk anywhere without putting a mask on, makes you put a mask on if you want to go to the loo, you know, tries to stop you from standing up and talking to anybody. I mean, it really is miserable. Well, yes, we, we tried to get into a pub on uh, on Sunday, a local, for, right. for, 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 a, for a meal. 
and it was it was fully booked. And I thought, fully booked? Are people really going out? And then I said, well, let's go out Monday. And we tried yeah. again. We, and they said, oh, you've got the last table. Mm. When we got there, we realised why. It was so spaced out. Right. There was a, in a, in a room where tables. there were normally 10 tables, there were only three. Yeah. Um, there's no, uh, they can't be making much no. money because everything's so, no, they can't. so regimented. No, no, yeah. And also, I mean, the point is, if they do bring this second uh, big lockdown in, you know, basically effectively shutting everything down, then really, um, a lot of these places which are hanging on for grim death basically won't make it. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, Mike, you, as you said rightly before, it's not just the economic argument, it's the medical argument. And, and people are forgetting that, that, for instance, one recorded death from an undiagnosed or untreated cancer or yeah. a, a heart complaint for every direct COVID-related mm. facility. And as you say... Um, covid related yeah what does that mean what does that mean well it happened during the coronavirus pandemic you know does that what it means we we can have a drink related death somebody gets as a few drinks too many walks in front of us staggers in front of a bus and gets killed that doesn't mean they've got a drink problem and they've died well funnily enough funny you should say that though but that's how public health england works that's how the statistics work when they say you know five million people died last year of uh, drink related deaths actually you know that's not true well, well, of course, don't forget that the duty of the, the medical establishment, Public Health England, Chris Whitty, all of those people, is to protect our health. And they will, they will do everything within their power to protect our health. So for them, it would be better if we didn't drink any alcohol, if we all went to uh, spend two hours in the gym every day, mm. uh, and if we, um, if we didn't eat any fat or anything anything sugary right that's just what they want that'd be great in the same way they don't want us to take any risks with this uh, with this virus um and and that is the problem like as i said once before to you like brexit there's a polarized view here there's the there's the economic argument where we say let's just get on with it Mm. which of course is a little bit crazy well well, i wonder whether also I wonder whether also they should take a leaf out of their own book and take a piece of advice from what's happening in Westminster because in Parliament we understand that there are already quite a few little uh, mini coronavirus outbreaks, one amongst the police force that guards it, uh, one Labour front bencher I'm told has got it. You know, they should know from that that it's not their fault. Nobody's accusing them of being, you know, garrulous and, and, and careless with the, with the, with the, with the sort of uh, the, the things that they should be doing and their behaviour is wrong and they're being reckless and all. Nobody's accusing them of that. The fact is you can't stop this disease from spreading. And they should learn from that. And they should say, well, if we can't stop it from spreading, then let's stop trying to stop it from spreading. Yeah, uh, it's all about balance. I mean, the people I've spoken to uh, on the medical establishment telling me more than more than ever that it's all about keeping a little bit of distance from people. Don't be talking directly into each other's faces. Um, uh, Wash your hands, uh, cover cover your face in 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 in, in, clo- in closed spaces. If you do all that, you, you are definitely mitigating the risks. Yeah, and that's that's all we can do. I mean, yeah, but it doesn't. Exactly I mean, the, the point same. is, is it doesn't. You can't make it eradicate it, though, can you? No, you can't. You can't. You can't eradicate eradicate road traffic accidents no. and deaths. Um, so what we do, we're used to we're used to the danger of the car. We're not scared of it. We don't refuse to drive a car, lock ourselves in, or refuse to get in a car. Right. But when we get in a car, we put a seatbelt on. We stop at traffic lights. We drive within the speed limits. When we cross the well, road, we look right, left, and right again. Unless you're a cyclist, in which case you don't obey the laws at all. It's do what you like, you know. <laughs> but but we do all these things to make it safer on the roads, and this is what we have to do with the virus. We have to take action that makes it less likely to kill us yes and that is and we have to learn to live with that risk yes but at the same time as i said my question today david is what is the point of saving lives which is the big phrase that they all use if you're actually going to cost lives at the other end of the equation because that's what's going to happen yeah exactly and uh, the wider health impact of lockdowns can't be ignored uh, and i know that the uh, public health officials always want these tight controls and they want a 100% guarantee that this infection won't spread but they do have to look at the knock on effects of this more people are now likely to die uh, from the failure to treat other ailments than will die from covid mm. and how is that in any way uh, the right way to 
succeed on this issue. No, exactly right. And the whole business of like tier one, two and three, you know, Sadiq Khan wants us to move into tier two in London, right? But James Chiaverini, a uh, good friend of this show, owner of a couple of restaurants in Kensington, says this, if you can't mix with anyone outside of your own front door, then what is the point and the purpose of restaurants? Surely better to mandate closure so we can submit a claim under prevention of access. And that's, that's going to be a big row going on because if the government makes out that people can still open restaurants but nobody can go to them, then that basically gets them out of having to pay any compensation. But it's not fair. Yeah, absolutely. And you mark my words on this. Fast forward two years when, the, when the, hopefully this is all over and we're in an economic mess and there's uh, millions unemployed and companies have gone to the wall. Keir Starmer won't be talking about the virus then. He'll be talking about the economic mess that the Tories have left us in as we head towards a, a general election. Right. And, uh, and, and, and remember Churchill won the war and then we got into a bit of a mess economically yes. and, uh, and that cost him his job. So um, politics is a very uh, fickle game and uh, whatever Boris does here, um, I don't think he can win. I don't no. think he can win on what this What do you one. see uh, happening at midday? Because obviously I would imagine it would be quite fiery, quite sort of bad-tempered. Boris, I imagine, is not very pleased with the, what Sir Keir Starmer has done this morning. No, um, I, and there is, there, is, there is an argument that Boris should really try to bring Keir into the, uh, into the tent a little more, drag him inside, make him uh, partly responsible for the policies that are being imposed. But, of course, Keir Starmer won't want to do that. He wants to be well, able to... Well, he's been to, asking for that for ages, yeah. hasn't he? So, of course, well, yeah, now, but, if he is offered it, he won't take it. He won't take it because he knows that if he takes that, he is culpable yeah. along with the Prime Minister. So his canny little game here is to walk that tightrope uh, between uh, supporting the government, wanting the best for Britain, uh, but at the same time boxing Boris Johnson into a corner mm. so that when things go wrong, he can say, yeah, we told you so. But also, you know, I'm today... not in favour of giving people who lose elections positions of power in government. There's a reason they're not in government. People didn't want to put them there. So I don't think they should be allowed to go into government just because the Prime Minister of the day thinks it's a good idea. No, no, absolutely, and um, and I don't think I don't think that's going to happen at all. But I, I, I think what Boris Johnson has tried to do is say, look, uh, the country's in a crisis here um, of nobody's making. Mm. Uh, please, uh, you know, let's let's all, let's all work together to try and save lives and and keep Britain on its feet. And of course. Um, uh, Keir Starmer is playing a very canny and long-term game here. Um, uh, he wants he wants to. Uh, give Boris Johnson enough rope to hang himself in a couple of years' time. Mm. Well, I've got a great tweet here from a guy called Steve, uh, and I'm going to make this tweet of the day so far. He says, why doesn't Sir Keir Starmer call it the people's lockdown? Because that would probably <laughs> surely uh, be in fashion with what he did the last time around. <laughs> Look how well that went. <laughs> Surprisingly, a lot of people are in favour of a lockdown. It well, you say that, right? But I, yeah. I, I don't know very many people who are. And I mean, I know the polls all say that these are people who are in favour, but I wonder if it's because they're being asked the question uh, with the words before, would you prefer to have a better, bigger lockdown? Uh, would you help to save lives by having a bigger lockdown? You know? It depends It depends on the question, of course. But I, I, do, I do think there is a, um, a, a hard... Most of us have got... the. The, the Boris Johnson viewpoint on this, which is we need to have a balance between protecting people, protecting the most vulnerable, but trying to get on with our lives and trying to keep the economy going and jobs uh, alive. Um, yeah, the, the, there are um, extremes and, and sizable numbers of people who just think we should lock everything down to protect us all because they're, they're, they're frankly quite scared about it all. And then there are the other people who are a bit sort of um, more cavalier who believe, uh, oh, this is just like the flu. Let's get on with our lives and forget it. And if, any, if you die, tough luck. Um, I, but I do think uh, that there are sizable numbers of people on either side there. But but I, I think that the sensible thing is the way that Boris Johnson is trying to do it. But, of mm. course, he can never get it right because if he's a little bit too far towards the economy, he's accused of... of well, of, I think, of, I mean, his, his overall I mean his overall kind of message, supposedly, right, uh, is that he's not keen to lock down places where there aren't that many infections. At the moment, the southeast of England doesn't have that many infections. It's all very well for Sadiq Khan to go bumbling on about how the rise in cases is going up. But it's not. The rise in infections might be going up, but it's a very different matter, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, and again, up in Liverpool, what, what, what happened there? I, I, I was up there a few weeks ago, mm. and um, I went in one, one pub, 
uh, where it was absolutely heaving. Um, there were three deep at the bar. Right. Um, there was a karaoke on, and it was a Sunday <laughs> evening. Right. So we, so I moved to go to another pub where there was a rope across the door saying, wait here to, to, to check yeah. in. Right. Uh, a young woman came with a visor over her face, asked for my phone number, made me wash my hands, told me it was two to a table, only one at the bar to get to order drinks and that they would bring it and you had to pay by credit card. Yeah. Um, there were about 12 people inside that pub. It was dying on its feet. Yeah, right. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, it's not, you can't just say, and people are saying this, you know, the people of Liverpool deserve this lockdown because they've all behaved intolerably. No, that's not the case. I think in every part of the country, you, you've you've got area, some pubs and some establishments which don't follow the rules, and you've got others that do. Yes. If everybody followed the rules, I think uh, there'd be no need for these lockdowns. Well, very possibly, but I mean, I think it's a bit unfair, as I say, to blame people for not following the rules when the rules mm. are so sort of haphazard and and, con- and and sort of contradictory. And similarly, and change every minute. Yeah, and if people are walking around, as I understand, they are in uh, Westminster, uh, in the Palace of Westminster, without masks on because they feel strongly about not wearing them, which I put, fully support. Um, you know, but why should anybody else do it? No, well, look, that that is the same as everywhere else, Mike. Uh, I, I'm with the, the speaker ordered that we all walk around with masks on, uh, which I can. Uh, but it's uh, advisory only, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, uh, a lot of people are doing so now, mm. um, but but you do see the odd one, and uh, and, and that is frowned upon in the same way you see somebody sitting on a train without a mask on. You know, yeah. if, if the rules are there, whether you believe in them or like them or not, then you know we must all do these rules because we must all obey these rules because that that's the way. That's the way society. Well, that's um, what they tell us, right? But David, the problem is, is that ever since these rules have been brought in in almost every country in Europe, wearing of masks has been compulsory in Spain for months now, right? And yet, somehow, uh, the, the the number of infections is still going up. So, how do you work yeah. that out? Well, yeah, I mean, but if it, it, originally the scientists told us in this country there was no point in yeah, wearing masks. That's what I mean. And and still, that, that, that's an issue. But um, if if the rules are brought in. <laughs> You can't go around ignoring them. You have to. You have to obey them. I'm afraid. Well, I mean, you say that, but not everybody agrees. David, listen, no, thanks no, very no, much no, indeed. No. That's. I mean, that's the problem. David Wooding, uh, who is of course political editor of the Sun on Sunday, um, he says if the rules are brought in, you have to obey them. Yeah, but the, ba- the the obeying of those rules is surely based on the way that the rules are constructed, whether the rules are actually working, and whether the rules are something that people are supposedly consenting to do. We are supposedly uh, policed by consent. We are supposedly ruled by consent. We have elected people to make rules. We have not elected people to tell us what to do, to shove us around, to tell us to stand up, sit down, go over there, pay this fine, shut up, don't argue with us. That's not what we elected them to do, is it? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Uh, There are other things going on, though, uh, in the House of Commons, and we're going to speak to Andrew Rossendall, MP, in a second. But let me just uh, bring something to your attention, which I think you may wish to know about, and it is... Megan, I'm afraid, once more, uh, in her seeking of privacy in California. I'm afraid she's been in the news again. Uh, it's coming daily now. Uh, last night she did a webinar uh, in which uh, she was talking to various people about social media. She said that it's like an addiction and an obsession. And then she urged people to amplify the positive, saying, you don't reward bad behaviour with your dog, so you shouldn't do it with anything else. Now, if you'd wanted to watch this particular webinar, uh, you would have had to fork out $1,750. Great, isn't it? Must be terrible just about surviving out there in the 16-bathroomed house in Montecito. But let's talk about things a little closer to home. Uh, Andrew Rossendale, MP, of course, is here with us, Conservative MP for Romford. Um, he wants to talk about pets because an awful lot of people who rent properties in this country find it very difficult to find properties to rent, partly because they have policies against pets. And he is championing the cause uh, of people who have pets. So let's have a listen to it. Andrew, very good morning to you. Hello, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's a big problem, this, something, uh, and I'm actually quite grateful to you for uh, being able to talk about something which is not coronavirus-related for a change. Um, You're going to be introducing a bill, I understand, today. Yes, I am, and uh, I I agree. It's a welcome relief from (laughs) talking about all the miserable things going on in the world today, but this is a positive thing. It's about letting dog owners and owners of other pets 
actually keep their animals when they move home. Mm. They're afraid uh, unnecessary laws uh, and rules that exist that prevent owners of animals, pets, when they move home from keeping their dog or their pet. And that leads to the animal being abandoned. It leads to great trauma with the person actually losing their loved animal. And I think that this needs to change. And so my bill today going on the floor of the House will give uh, the rights back to the tenants to keep their dogs and their pets, provided they are responsible owners, that the animal behaves uh, properly and doesn't cause a nuisance to other people. There's no reason to stop a well-behaved animal living with a human being in rented accommodation, and my bill will make that the law of this country. Absolutely right, because you're calling it Jasmine's law, because as much as people uh, who maybe don't have pets don't understand quite how important this is, just tell us a couple of stories of how people have been affected by this. Well, uh, there's a number of um, cases that I've been looking at where one particular case where sadly a man committed suicide because Mm. he was homeless and he was offered accommodation, but they weren't uh, able to, he wasn't able to take his pets with him. So he committed suicide. And there are many tragic examples of where people have gone through awful traumas uh, because they've lost what they consider to be a member of their family. An animal is like a member of the family. Uh, Jasmine um, is a Waimarama. She lives in Surrey and um, she is banned from staying with the son of a friend of mine. And they would love Jordan. Uh, Jordan would love the dog to stay with um, uh, in his flat, but they're not allowed because of this no pets policy. So at the end of the day, this is a nonsense rule. And I think that we need to update the law and I'm not saying that, you know, if someone owns accommodation, they're renting it out, that people have the right to allow an animal to do damage or to cause a nuisance. Of right. course not. But I do think that where an animal is well behaved, where the owner wants to keep the, the animal, I don't see why uh, landlords should basically, you know, on many occasions ruin, ruin people's yeah. lives and make them choose between their animal and their home. Right. And I, especially, and especially now, Andrew, with so few people being able to actually buy a property because of uh, the amount of uh, difficulty you have to go through and hoops you have to jump through to even get a mortgage, even if you can afford it, you know, because mortgages are in very short supply these days. So more and more people are renting. Um, and also, I mean, we have a phrase on this show called common sense. It seems common sense to not have a blanket ban, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's what I'm seeking to do. So I want to reassure sure landlords that this is not going to mean that someone who's an irresponsible dog owner, the dog's barking and causing nuisance or messing on whatever it might do. I'm not saying that there, there isn't going to be ways of stopping that happening. But I think at the moment, things are biased to, to being really anti-pets. And I think we need to balance this up uh, rather in the other direction mm. so that the default position is, yeah, if you've got an animal, of course you can bring the animal, but there needs to be checks and balances. So if you bring the animal into this accommodation, um, that you will prove yourself to be a responsible owner. Yes. And I mean, one of the things about Parliament at the moment is that it does still have a lot of business to conduct. There's a lot of Brexit bills that need to be going through, private members' bills like your own. Um, there's a lot of talk at the moment of a possible suspension of Parliament, particularly if Sir Keir Starmer gets his way and gets a lockdown. Um, what's your thoughts about that? Because virtual Parliament is all very well, but it doesn't seem to work quite as well as, as real Parliament. No, well, I I disagree with that. Um, I don't believe that Parliament should be suspended. We have work to do. Um, And it's not just, as you said earlier, it's not just about coronavirus. There are lots of issues to do with Brexit we need to talk about. And there's lots of other day-to-day legislation that we need to continue to debate, like the bill that I'm putting forward today, which affects people's lives. Mm. So, you know, we have work to do. And we are the UK Parliament. You know, we are British and we don't just give up that easily. And I really think... In a general point, I think that we need to keep the country moving. And, you know, I'm one of the slightly sceptical ones on on the current proposals for further lockdowns. I was one of the rebels last night. I didn't vote with the government on the curfew. I think that we need to do what the British are good at and get on with our lives, uh, face adversity and uh, get our economy back on its feet again, because I think that that's the only way we're going to survive this. Yes. Well, I mean, Sir Keir Starmer, bless his cotton socks, was also against the, uh, the, the curfew last Wednesday. Uh, but then by Thursday, you turned on that. And now he seems to want to shut pubs altogether. I, I'm, I'm afraid to say I'm very disappointed with um, Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party generally. It isn't a political point. Right. I just think they, you know, times like 
this, we, we need to pull together as a nation. And it seems like they're constantly making political points, yeah. changing their views, you know, just so that they're against whatever Boris is saying on mm. that particular day. I don't envy the job that Boris has got at the moment. I think if Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister at this point, he would face exactly the same issues, the same challenges. So I think that all politicians, whichever party we are, have a duty to work together sensibly to get the best for our country during this pandemic. And I just think that Labour should put politics aside a little more and actually work with the government to ensure that we get through this as a nation successfully. We need to get out the other side. And the last thing people want to hear is politicians bickering about this. We need to move forward together. Absolutely. And Andrew, on your on your bill about pets and, and, and renting property, um, what happens after today? Do you get it? Uh, do you have to move it through the, the process? How soon before you might get it into law? Well, it's uh, Jasmine's Law, I'm calling it, uh, named after the Weimarama, and um, uh, hoping that Jasmine's Law will become law. But being honest about it, this is a 10-minute rule bill. So all I get is 10 minutes to present the bill today on first reading. Um, if, it's, if it's voted through, and I'm confident it will be, uh, then there'll be a second reading probably early next year. The only problem is with these types of bills is that it, it can then run out of time and mm. it doesn't have enough time to progress to committee stage and report stage and third reading and so on. So it may well run out of time and not become law itself. However, the, the real gain from this, hopefully, is that it will gain so much support that the government will include it in one of their own pieces of legislation. And they are sort, sort of moving in that direction. So I'm hoping it will create enough impact to ensure that next time the government have the opportunity to change the law themselves to ensure that we can actually make this uh, legislation and in the future people won't suffer by losing their animals when they move home. Exactly. Andrew, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Andrew Rossendall, Conservative MP for Romford, uh, one of those who didn't vote uh, with the government to keep the 10pm curfew, one of those who's not absolutely and utterly convinced that another lockdown uh, is necessary uh, or indeed a good idea. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's pick up where we left off uh, with Neil Oliver. Neil, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me back in the decompression chamber. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, I come in here every morning and sort of let loose an awful lot of stress. But I have to yeah. say, I woke up this morning um, feeling quite sort of... Um, beaten about by it all. You know, this whole Keir Starmer's now suddenly moved from being a man that was questioning last week the 10.30, uh, the 10 o'clock curfew, rather, uh, asking for the medical evidence that proved that it was worthwhile. So now going sort of full lockdown. It's bizarre. I can't. I keep. I, I hear myself week after week saying I can't follow it anymore. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I can't make sense of it. But definitely what has changed as the months have gone on uh, is the appearance on the scene of more and more voices, credible voices, scientific voices, people who've worked in 
uh, in healthcare for their entire lives, mm. eminent virologists and epidemiologists, definitely questioning the the lockdown. Uh, and I, I find that in, it actually only intensifies my feelings of of doubt and and anxiety because yeah. when you're when you feel for a while that you're on your own and it must be something wrong with you for thinking that this might not be the best way to go ahead, you can tell yourself that it's uh, you know you're in the wrong. Mm. But increasingly, I'm hearing more and more voices that that are saying and seem to be expressing thoughts that I've had all along. And and now you think, well, why why are the why are the powers that be and those who are able to make the decisions just betting more and more money on the roulette wheel in the mm. hopes that you know they, they finally get a big win, which I don't think anybody else thinks is coming. Well, no. And also the numbers I'm very suspicious of now. And many, the more and more people I speak to um, are saying they don't really trust the way the government is rolling out these numbers. You hear more and more percentages and fewer and fewer mm-hmm. actual numbers. You know, so as somebody said to me yesterday, you know, if hospital admissions have gone up by 40% in Merseyside, if it's gone up from, you know, 10 to 14, that's no big deal. If it's gone up, you know, from um, f- from 1,000 to uh, gone up by another 400, well, that's something else. But we don't know the actual number. No, and I read uh, I read an article. I know you can only put a certain amount of uh, weight on any given piece of writing, but in Spectator magazine this week, uh, I think it was Dr. John Lee, who's a yeah. pathologist, uh, and, and he was suggesting that, or he was saying, that we will never know. We will never know how many people have actually died of COVID because mm. of the way in which the government's been counting deaths. Mm. And also, he was, he was a, a you know, pathologist, part of the coronial system, the coroners, and he was uh, pointing out that uniquely, there were changes made that normally with the advent of a new disease, and he made the example when AIDS and HIV appeared in the, in the 80s, that the, the autopsies and the work of coroners and pathologists better to understand what the disease actually was, mm. was critical, crucial in coming to an understanding of, of how best to deal with it. Yeah. But changes were made and, and autopsies haven't been carried out on COVID deaths, right. on people who died of COVID. And furthermore, in the past, it was necessary for two doctors to come to a sort of agreement around the death certificate about what had been the cause of death. Right. And now that's no longer happening. It's one individual. And sometimes that one individual is is declaring the cause of death, never having actually met or encountered the person in real life. Mm. Just some kind of, you know, video uh, conversation that has taken place at, at some point. It, it all ended up with this, you know, eminent figure saying, we'll never know how many people have died. And, and so all around the world, we're, we're comparing ourselves with, we've lost this many people. And in that country, they've lost that many. But there's no consistency between the countries about how the deaths no. have been calculated. So, well, we're, we're daily told that Britain is doing so terribly badly. And it, maybe it is. But because different countries have always been counting in different ways, I don't see how there will ever be a point where we would be able to compare death rates in different countries. And I continue to believe that from what I've read over and over again, it tends to be something like 600 in, in every million mm. die of COVID in the population. And I think when the, in, in years to come, when, it, when it's possible to, to look back on it with some kind of hindsight, every country will have lost at the same level yeah. because we don't have a cure, we don't have a vaccine. Right. This whole thing about locking down, if, if, you, if they do, I'm sure, if they locked us down around the world for 24 hours a day, then the, the numbers of infections would, would plummet for certain. Yeah. But you have to keep letting people out after three months or after a right. certain period of time. And then people mix and the, and the numbers go up again because they don't have a vaccine and they don't have a cure. And they, at the moment, this week, the last couple of weeks, the talk of a vaccine has gone further and further back into the long grass again. Right. Well, so, I mean, more or less, Boris Johnson this week more or less said there may never be a vaccine. I mean, that was it. those are his words. You know, he's, there's no vaccine, he said, for several diseases. There may never be one for this. And also the whole lockdown thing, Neil. Yes, uh, the, 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 the infection rate goes down, but it only goes down until you stop the lockdown. So it only goes down for the two weeks, you know. Yeah, and, and at the moment, it, what they're showing, what their own figures are showing is that the, uh, the infection rates, however they calculate them, percentages, figures or whatever, it's happening around schools and universities. Mm. Yeah, now, very clearly. That, that's, that's where the that's where the numbers are going up. It isn't, and, and yet they're they're crucifying the hospitality industry again. Right. And it's but it stands to reason if if 
obviously people are cropping up, are, are being counted as having been in pubs, in restaurants and so on, because we're all filling in the forms that say, I was here and, and here are my contact details. Mm. But that's, that's only identifying people who are out and about. Going to a restaurant is just one of the things they're doing. Yeah. But they're also they're out in the they're out in the community. They're maybe they're students at university, or maybe they're, they're people who parents who've got children coming and going from school and whatever. And there doesn't seem any logical connection for me between saying, well, the numbers are going up. Uh, let's shut down hospitality again. Where is this? Where is? I don't see the sense in that. And they're not they're, they're not talking about shutting down the schools again at the moment. They're they're insistent on the students being at university. Yes. But, uh, you know, locked you know, in solitary confinement in the halls of, of residence. There doesn't, there's no, it, 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 the picture is not holding together. It's really the not. And also we've just seen, we've just seen the, the announcement from Northern Ireland, uh, Neil, in which they have decided to lock down schools for an extra week. And I have to say, I'm not entirely confident that if I lived in Northern Ireland as a parent, I wouldn't be entirely confident that it's only going to be two weeks. So they're taking half term and then they're adding another week. Now, if you're a parent, as we both are, and you have to take time off with your kids because it's half term, you now in Northern Ireland have to take two weeks. In, in simple terms, if they don't have a vaccine, and there's a certain amount of open admission at the moment that that could be a long time in the future if it comes at all. Yeah. Then the only uh, the only bullet they have in their gun is lockdown. Yeah. You can't. Well, are they are they seriously contemplating for now into an uncertain future? They just keep locking either parts of or the entire population down for weeks and weeks on end, mm. just so that they can salve their consciences that for a, for that limited period they kept their various numbers. Yeah. It, at levels that they happen to be, you know, feel less feel less guilty about, and then every time they have to let people out again after the after a lockdown, the numbers go up again. Until they have a vaccine, they can't solve it with lockdowns. Yeah, it's simple. No, I keep, they, they really I say, can't. I said, last, I said to you last week. I feel in, I feel increasingly it's the, the virus is running the show here. Yeah. Until they have a vaccine or a cure they can't actually meaningfully affect what the virus is doing beyond the lockdown. Mm. And, and that's only a temporary measure. That just delays uh, deaths. That just stops deaths happening now and delays them until some point in the future. And it increasingly feels like the, the virus is driving the car and the governments are in the passenger seat with one of those wee toy wheels that you give your kids where they can pump the horn and, and, and move the steering wheel. Yeah. But the car's going where the parent is driving it to and they're just pretending they're just pretending with the wee plastic steering wheel and the wee pump pump horn right. that they have some kind of effect on the destination of the population, yes. and they're not. No, and they won't admit it. But this is the problem, isn't it? Because if you go back seven months, I mean, I remember the first lockdown uh, like it was yesterday, actually, because I was sitting uh, in a bar a hun uh, about 100 yards away from the opening uh, door of this office, um, and there was nobody, it was already nobody in the bar, because I think for the first um, uh, two or three days before that, they'd been warned that this was happening. And I remember speaking to the woman who was behind the bar, who was a drama student. Uh, she was from Eastern Europe, and she said, well, I've just had my uh, drama school closed down. I'm hoping um, that, that, that this won't last, last for very long, this lockdown, because I won't be able to make any money, and I'll probably have to go home to my country because I can't get a job here uh, and because I, I can only really work in, in hospitality. And I don't know where I haven't seen her since. Uh, and then at the beginning, I understood it. We all understood it because it, it, this thing this thing came in. We saw the footage in China, and then we all saw the footage in Italy. And it was quite understandably that it looked very, very frightening. And there was all, all the talk about, you know, was this a you know was this a man-made virus? Was this all all sorts of, of frightening rumours were out there circulating? But then, as at nine months or whatever it is, however many months later. Mm. The, the, it seems to be undeniable that there's this 99% recovery rate from the disease yeah. and that while the numbers factored into a, a global population of whatever we're at now, 8 billion, uh, it, it's it is a large number, but, but when you set it against the context of, of 8 billion people, it, it's not. It's, right. it's a small percentage of people who, are, who have been harvested by this so far. And yet they have... Nine months or months later, they're persisting with these draconian uh, measures that have decimated economies, possibly to the point of no return. And there's all the, 
the collateral damage to people with heart disease, cancers, all the other ailments that aren't being treated. Mm. And it is simply no longer looking like uh, careering down this road that we're on is going to take us to anywhere but disaster. Well, exactly. And I said at the start of this show, what is the point of saving lives over here uh, if over on the other side of the wall there's a lot of people dying because they're committing suicide, because they're destitute, because they've lost their home, they've lost their job, they have no prospect whatsoever of doing anything about helping uh, to see their uh, their elderly relatives, um, you know, at all before they eventually uh, pass on. It's just, you know, I just can't believe that people think that this lockdown measure is even going to work because it clearly doesn't work. All of the lockdown areas we spoke about this last week that have been in mini lockdowns have had the, uh, the rates of virus um, infection increase. So, I mean, it, it doesn't even, it, there's no, not even a guarantee that it will work is what I'm saying. We're not hearing, we're not hearing from people who are having a bad COVID. We're hearing from the, we're hearing from the, the politicians, we're hearing from governments, uh, we're, we're hearing, what we have been hearing in the main from those scientists that, that believe that what the governments are doing is the right thing to do. Yeah. We're not hearing from the people, really, who are being destroyed economically or, mm. or emotionally or in terms of their health or, or by a combination of all three. Yeah. And the people who, are, who, are, who have their hands on the levers of power, they are busy, they're in, on full pay, uh, they're, they're feeling able that they're, they're out there in the world and they're having an effect. They feel as if they're doing something constructive and they're, they're filling their day constructively with the, with the busyness of trying to come to terms with all of this. The journalists who are covering it on a daily basis, all of those are the, are the people who, in the context of the pandemic, are in the best place because they've got their livelihoods are secure, they're out feeling busy, they're mixing with their colleagues at, at some level, but we're not hearing from the people who are being destroyed by this. No. And you begin to wonder, when will we ever hear about the, all the various lonely destructions and lonely deaths that are already happening and that will surely ensue if this goes on? For, and we're, we're talking about this being measured in months. Yeah. Before too long, we're going to look back and realise that we've been doing a variation of lockdown for years. And what kind of toll will that take? And we're not hearing from the people that are on the sharp end of that. Well, of Although in, in our communities we are, I'm hearing, I'm hearing things. I'm starting to hear rumours about people taking their own lives. Yeah. I'm starting to hear about you know people who've been destroyed by it in terms of their businesses and all the rest of it. But continuing to be told by the by the politicians and others that we're all in it together. Mm. You know when they awarded themselves a three and a half grand a year pay rise or whatever, we are evidently not all in it together. No. Well, I'm like you, beginning to hear stories of people saying that redundancy letters are being passed around their offices, regardless of whether it's a big business, a small business. You know, the furlough scheme runs out at the end of this month, as we know. There's going to be a big effect on that, I think, and people are going to find themselves out of work, and there are no jobs. So, you know, if the, 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 if, if the timing of the lockdown is such that uh, it happens towards the end of this month, it'll be just in time for people who are all out of work to literally have nowhere to go and to sit there contemplating their futures and be pretty depressed about it, I would imagine. And imagine Christmas. I thought, I mean, I'm, people go into this time of year, you know, the long, the long nights, the darkness, yeah. uh, weather in our part of the world. You know, this is, this is you, know, you know, part of what it is to be in Northern Europe at this time of the year. And when people go towards Christmas, people go towards New Year, these are, these are, traditionally periods of time anyway where large numbers of people struggle this is this is a difficult period that we're going into and yes as you say we're now looking at there being millions of people out there who are who are staring some kind of economic devastation in the face loss of jobs they're going to have children around them saying you know what can i have for christmas yeah and all the rest of it the families that will not be able to contemplate all of those uh, things that are traditional to this part of the year. And then we go into the new year and the doldrums of, mm. goodness, the first week in January and what that's like. What is that truly going to be like for people when all they've got to look forward to is the thought that a vaccine is still sometime in the future and at the moment the only thing the governments can think of to do is shut people in their homes yeah. and shut the businesses. Exactly that's right. disastrous. Yeah, and part of the problem as well, Neil, as we've said before, is the kind of uh, uncertainty 
Because if somebody says to you, look, you know, we're going to lock down, uh, everything's in the lockdown, actually, until December the 31st. If you said that, and if you then said, and then after that, we are going to launch ourselves at a new economy, a new way of working. We're going to invest massively in, in all sorts of businesses. Everybody's going to work. Everybody's going to have a job. Even if it was kind of pie in the sky, people would want that. They would say, well, at least we've got something to look forward to. But now there's nothing to look forward to. And plenty of people, you said at the beginning of our, our chat this morning that you know, you're, not, you're, you're hearing from, or you can't find someone who's loudly in support or in, uh, in support at all right. of what's being proposed. So you're obviously, you're hearing from the same broad cross-section of society that I am. Mm. And if, if even the people who, who stand to be most at risk are saying this is pointless, and that this can't go on. The elderly and people with underlying health conditions are already saying that this uh, solution that's being attempted at the moment isn't working and can't work. Then the powers that be, the authorities, have to review the situation radically. Because it, this, under, we all understand the problem that if there are too many illnesses all at the one time, that the NHS you know, would be put under potentially unbearable pressure. Well, that's what they keep saying. But as you, as you said last what, week, what's it for? But, but what's it for? You know, generations of our, of our, of our civilization have invested in the NHS, you know, so that it's there for a mm. rainy day. Well, right. it's raining. It's now raining. Right. And the rain's getting heavier and heavier, and it's not showing any signs of going, and going off anytime soon. And the, the NHS and it's, and it's, you know, whether it prevails or not is just one variable. You've also got a population of 60 odd, 70 million people who have lives that they have to get on with. And living in constant fear of COVID is not the excuse. Uh, you know, it does not give, the, it should not give the government the excuse to destroy and to imperil so many people's lives economically or in terms of other health conditions, just because they should not have these, they went at the beginning, they allowed themselves to believe that they could handle the situation that they were going to find a scientific and an economic solution to it. Now, so far, it's been demonstrated that they, their lockdowns haven't worked. They don't have a vaccine, you know, anywhere in the foreseeable future. And the, the consequences of lockdown have been and are going to be catastrophic. Yeah, well, I'm getting, I'm getting, even as we're speaking, I'm getting tweets from people saying, I've just been made redundant. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, another one from a guy who says his son's just been sent home from school because of a suspected uh, COVID test which may or may not be positive he's going to have to isolate for two weeks you know it's as if we've sort of suddenly given over power um to these people who were elected to represent us but i'm sorry they're not representing us they're, they're not they're not and the it does seem it's been like a it's been like a very alarming wake-up call i hadn't really realized in my naivety that that, that a government that just happened to be in power uh, you know, that was sort of holding the parcel when the music stopped, as yeah. it were, passed the parcel, could then award itself uh, all the powers that it wants to do, to have whatever control it wants to have over every movement that everyone makes every moment of the day. In my naivety, I hadn't actually, I hadn't modelled that, if you like, and thought that that was even possible that every time we put a tick in the ballot box, we were surrendering our every liberty and our every freedom. Yeah. Whoever was actually in uh, in authority in Holyrood or in Downing Street when something like this happened, and the and the fact that we find ourselves that you know that none of our none of our liberties uh, seem to matter a tuppenny damn when it comes right down to it. Mm. If a government can just take it upon itself to do whatever it wants with our lives into an uncertain future. Well, that's been a real, that's been a real wake up call for me. Yeah. Plainly they do have that in their power to write that legislation and get it through parliament by whatever means. And then, and here we are now where we just have to wake up every morning to be told basically whether we can get out of our houses or not. I know. And then what you can do when you do get out of the house, which won't be very much, I'm afraid. No, but, and then they're, they're, they're in this cleft stick where they're, they're feeling the need to let students be at university, to let pupils be at school, to let some people be out there working, which means that before you even start, your lockdown's a myth. A lockdown's only a lockdown if every single person, including them, yeah. everyone from 
Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon down is in their house for 24 hours a day yeah. and everything else is shut. That's a lockdown. Right. Anything less than that has, has as many holes in it as a colander. Yes. And people out there somewhere are mixing and they're taking it back into their homes. And maybe not as fast as it would be if we were all out together, but the mixing of humanity is happening because there has not been a single lockdown that has actually locked everyone down for a period of time at the same time. The people were out there filling the supermarket shelves, the bins were being collected, the nurses and doctors were out in the hospitals, you know, and all the variations in between. These are not lockdowns. Mm. Yeah, and, and as you say, Neil, the next one won't be either, and that won't work either. It's not rocket science. Neil, thanks very much indeed. Got to go. Unfortunately, we're out of time already. But welcome uh, once again to the show. Welcome to Talk Radio. If you're a new listener, uh, Neil Oliver's here, of course, uh, with us uh, every Wednesday. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, it is that time of the day where we get involved now in something other than the political uh, toing and froing of this country. And we go to some homeschooling because, of course, it is the anniversary, as you would expect it to be, on October the 14th of the Battle of Hastings, a subject rather close to my heart. There's normally reenactments going on uh, in Battle in Sussex. There aren't uh, any of those going on this year because of COVID, of course. But let us talk now to Michael Carter, Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage. Michael, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. And good afternoon to you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I, I'm a great uh, a sort of fan of the, the Battle of Hastings because um, my kids don't live very far from battle. And so every time there is a reenactment, we always go up and sort of hang around and watch it. And, and of course, um, everybody always uh, sees the same ending because they don't ever change it. But uh, it's a fascinating time and a fascinating kind of battlefield, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so unfortunate that we haven't been able to have the traditional reenactment this year because of um, COVID. But as you said, you know, it's it's there. Battle Abbey stands on the very spot where the battle was fought in 1066. And there would have been about three hours into the battle now. It starts at the third hour, trumpet blasts at the third hour. And that's about 6 a.m. And they'd have been hacking at one another now for three hours. It was an incredibly bloody, hard-fought battle, even by the standards of the Middle Ages. And and my uh, question that I always put to people is why did they call it the Battle of Hastings uh, when it was actually the Battle of Battle? But I know that's a bit of a stupid question. <laughs> that's a very, very good question, isn't it? Um, some of the early sources say, uh, to, uh, to locate it, said it's for nine miles away from Hastings. Right. But then they, they then go on to add at the place now called Battle. Yes, which I suppose is, is, is fairly well named, as indeed is Norman's Bay, where a lot of the, the, the Norman ships actually landed. But the real reason um, that we were told, and I don't know if how true this is, Michael, that, that, that the English forces were uh, defeated was because they were so tired from marching down from Stamford Bridge up in Yorkshire where they'd been fighting off the Vikings, because at that time they were all fighting off all sorts of, uh, you know, sort of uh, invaders, weren't they? Yeah, it's a real medieval Game of Thrones that the English throne is contested. Uh, Edward the Confessor has died on the 5th of January 1066 without an apparent heir. And Harold, um, Harold Godwinson is uh, nominated his successor, but there are rival claimants, not just Duke William of Normandy, but Harold Hardrada, King of Norway. And he invades and a terrible battle is fought up in Northern England at the Battle of Stamford Bridge on the 25th of uh, September. And it's a spectacular um, uh, victory for Harold, but then William lands and he has to make this forced march. But there's more to the reason why they're knackered on the morning of the battle as well. But um, a store, uh, one of the sources, a guy called William of Malmesbury, a, a many early uh, 12th century historian, mm. mentions how the two armies spend the night before the battle. And the pious Normans, uh, according to their national custom, they say confession the night before, then get up early and go to mass. Whereas the English are described as carousing around the campfire and basically getting a bit drunk. Mm. So they're, um, they're hungover and right. knackered. <laughs> Sounds about right, doesn't it, for the English versus the French? But it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that I suppose uh, is historical from what happened is the Bayou Tapestry. And there's been some doubt pressed, uh, sort of pe- passed upon that now in terms of whether it was an act of sort of vanity by the guy who commissioned it and, and whether or not actually the arrow in the eye really did happen. Yeah, I mean, the, 
the Bayer Tapestry is a fantastic source for the Battle of Hastings. Mm. And uh, put together with the written sources, you get a real sense of how the action unfolded. Um, and it's a very, very well-documented battle, the Battle of Hastings for a medieval battle. But the arrow in the eye, yes, there's a 19th century restoration to the... Um, to the uh, to, to the Bayer Tapestry, and some people have argued that the arrow in the eye is actually an invention from that time in the tapestry right. to try and accord with written sources describing what had happened that day. And how Harold dies is an actually uh, there are three conflicting stories in the sources. One says that he's killed early on along with his brothers. Mm. Another one is the arrow in the eye, and another one is a rather gruesome dismemberment um, mm. by numerous uh, Norman knights. Yes, which is which is particularly bloodthirsty. I've been through a few of those. If you're ever going to go to a reenactment, I always recommend that you you know you have the food before uh, they actually do the battle, because otherwise <laughs> you don't feel much like eating. But there's another theory abroad, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which which says that the actual battlefield itself, which is you know kind of to the I don't know I suppose to the south of the uh, of the abbey site, uh, isn't the real battle site, and the actual site was the other side. What would have now what would be the road? Uh, and a pub there called the Checkers, and it might have actually taken place on the other side. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it was a huge battlefield. You know, um, uh, uh, with, with the, the armies were five to seven thousand men, and the English army, the Anglo-Saxon army, was arranged across the crest of the hill. It would have extended down into the valley where the reenactment takes place. Yeah. But the front line would have shifted. But sources within living memory of the Battle of Hastings say that. Um, William ordered the abbey to be founded on the very spot of the conflict. And by the 12th century, the early 12th century, so within 30, 40 years of the battle being fought, it's already being said that the high altar of the abbey church is located where either Harold's mm. standard had been or where Harold's body was recovered. Yes. And so, I you know, I'm not troubled by... By you know, I know the Checkers pub where you mean, and you know it's just outside the precincts of the Abbey. I'm not the least bit troubled by saying that there was some fighting on that location, but it could well have been that by the end of the day, and I believe these sources. I mean, there is a crushing weight of documentary evidence about the Battle of Hastings being fought on the site of Battle Abbey. Right, and I've I've never. I mean, I'm, you you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm told they've never found a great deal of weaponry uh, on the site. Because for whatever reason, they, it, I don't know whether it were decomposed or, you know, there is a museum on the site which has got some stuff. But, but from, from, from what you would have expected, there's not a great deal of, um, uh, of actual, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, uh, artefacts from the battle. Yeah, you know your stuff that are actually none. Um, and it's not unusual for medieval battles before the 15th century. Yeah. I and mean, there's very little battlefield archaeology from before the 15th century. And it's especially the case at Battle Abbey because, you know, it's the abbey itself is built in the worst possible location for a monastery. It's on a hillside and the monks had to undertake extensive um, landscaping work to build their, um, their monastery terraced into the side. It's been intensively farmed um, over the centuries, parkland, uh, the monks themselves um, put into a lot of uses. So it's not in the least bit surprising that no battlefield archaeology has survived from uh, mm. at the site of the Battle of Hastings. No. OK. Um, and we're watching some of the reenactments now as, as, as we watch the, uh, the YouTube channel there. But, but you've got some fascinating artefacts of your own there. Is that what sort of sword is that you've got next to you? Oh, it's not a sword. It's, um, it's, a, it's a 14th century processional cross. Ah, oh, OK. So it's not a weapon then. <laughs> a spiritual weapon. <laughs> I thought it might be some kind of claymore or something like that. <laughs> no, see, I'm sorry. You know, the, 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 the film quality is a little bit uh, weak, so you can't quite make it out. But right. yeah, I assure you, it's spiritual. Okay, brilliant stuff. Well, listen, Michael, thank you very much indeed. Michael Carter there uh, talking to us from English Heritage, senior properties historian, about the Great Battle of Hastings, which uh, if you haven't been to Battle Abbey, you should really go. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, site. And like all battlefield sites, there's something quite sort of mystical about it and something quite magical about it. Normally, uh, as I say, this time of year, uh, down in Sussex, they would have a reenactment of the battle where people actually walk through the town dressed as Norman soldiers and Anglo-Saxon soldiers. And then they, they actually camp out uh, in the in the grounds of the Battle Abbey uh, battlefield and, and basically eat and drink all the things that they would have been eating and drinking then. It's quite an amazing kind of thing to do. But unfortunately, this year, like everything else uh, that isn't going on, it isn't going on.
For heaven's sake, when are we going to get out of this madness? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.